In IT, there's just not enough time in the day to get everything done. This is especially true in cybersecurity, where new threats constantly emerge. So, it stands to reason that security professionals should automate away menial tasks and routine tests. Sounds obvious, right? Well, security automation is an area where many organizations fall short. According to the State of DevOps 2019 report, only 31% of elite performing teams automate security tests, and lower performers automate even less. Security professionals' lack of coding experience is often the culprit, as it can leave the business exposed to a lot of risk if it prohibits them from addressing vulnerabilities. I'm David Carty, site editor of Search Software Quality. This is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. My guest today is Mark Baggett. He is a technical advisor to the Department of Defense, a senior certified instructor for the Sands Institute, and a former chief information security officer. But Baggett started his career as a software developer, which has helped him understand systems at the code level and think like a hacker. Baggett is instructing a course called Automating Information Security with Python at Security East. This course aims to give security professionals some basic coding knowledge so that they can automate away those mundane tasks and focus on more important objectives. Mark and I discuss how cybersecurity professionals can pick up some coding skills, as well as how they can bridge that sometimes adversarial gap with developers. Here's my conversation with Mark. Let's start out with a big picture question. There's a lot of worry about the state of cybersecurity and the inability of many organizations to keep up with the various threats that are out there. Uh, you're plugged into the cybersecurity community as an advisor and as an instructor. What cybersecurity challenges are keeping teams awake at night? What are their most significant concerns as far as you see them? Yeah, of course, what keeps people awake at night really changes from organization to organization. Like we. It, it really comes down to what are the what data do they have and what are the biggest risks that they have associated with that uh, data. Mm-hmm. There's um, you know various ways that attackers break into systems. For some, for some organization, it's you know, things like um, you know, ransomware coming around and encrypting their data. You know, they're, they're worried about some information um, being encrypted and stolen. Common attacks we see that are affecting the large numbers of organizations are things like phishing schemes, where you know, someone within the, the organization clicks on an email and then, or clicks on a link in an email and enters their credentials into what they think is their Outlook emails website, but it turns out that it was just a credential harvesting website and they steal their passwords and then they use that to commit financial fraud or um, to take money from the organization. You know, there's there's simple attacks like that that we see um, that are still affecting large numbers of organizations that people can address with just simple, basic information security hygiene, you know, keeping patches up to date and antivirus software and having good, strong passwords in their organizations. Um, and then there's there's more sophisticated attacks that we see in organizations, things where uh, people have done the basic blocking and tackling associated with protecting their networks, and it, um, they have a different level of attacker that's coming after them. Um, things that would, uh, you know, oftentimes issues that are uh, created by uh, poor.
poor programming practices, um, mistakes in code, things like that, uh, largely in uh, corporate websites and things like that, where people have created a corporate web application that's vulnerable to some type of a web attack, like a command injection or mm-hmm. um, a SQL injection attack and things like that, where attackers can embed themselves inside of the content of the web page or get code to execute on the web page, uh, giving them um, an advantage over uh, their victims. Sure. Uh, and you advise on the public sector side as well. Um, obviously, cyber operations, cyber warfare is a, is a real worry now, too. While I'm sure you can't get into specifics, you know, how, how do those sorts of organized and sophisticated attacks uh, change the equation? How, how do teams combat that from a top-to-bottom kind of perspective? Yeah, I mean, certainly over the last 10 years, the, the landscape has, has changed uh, quite dramatically from the, the the volume of government organizations that are involved in in uh, these types of attacks. You know, the uh, many of the main players are just targeting each other, um, so government upon government attacks. But um, you do still have some countries out there that have well-funded organizations that are attacking corporate America, attacking users in their homes um, Mm -hmm. and going after uh, not necessarily sophisticated attackers. You know, one of the things that one of the uh, stories we tell or or things we we talk about as we compare, you know, the United States to other countries is, you know, in the United States, as you're training um, your attackers, you really have to build a simulated environment, right? Um, if I want to teach somebody how to break into a company, well, I've got to build a network that has simulated users and simulated applications with configurations that we would typically see in a government or or in a corporate network, mm-hmm. and then teach people how to breach those systems. Whereas in other countries where they they don't necessarily follow the same laws that we do, they um, they can train their uh, their hackers on you know. Uh, different levels of networks within that are actually exist on the internet. So you might have level one of their, their training would be to attack some, some low level uh, civilian networks and then uh, go after some of the small businesses and then work their way up to some of the corporations that are, are, have better defenses in in their networks. Right. And we've seen that, I mean, recently too, I mean, just watching the news, but, but, you know, having that black, black hat perspective has got to be so helpful when you're thinking through, uh, the possibilities here. Um, it does, um, but I, you know what? You know, this is since I know you're the, the test and release podcast, and mm-hmm. we're talking about application developers. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I got to say is that, that web applications, um, binary applications, people who know how to write applications, right, really often have a significant advantage over those who, who don't when it comes to understanding how these attacks work, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you know how to write code, if you know how programs work, then you know the rules that um, are used to construct applications and you know how to manipulate those rules. So oftentimes, yes, um, understanding how the attacker thinks is a significant advantage in defending your network, but uh, also understanding how to develop applications is 
one of the best ways to understand how you can manip manipulate systems. And when you combine the application development experience with the, the process of understanding how the attackers think and what techniques they use, um, that really combining those two skills turns into a very powerful, um, a very powerful mindset that helps you see the threats, understand how they would be exploited, and then put defenses in place to protect yourself. Right, and this gets into something that we talked about uh, before the podcast. You mentioned that developers who enter the security field are often some of the best talent in the industry. Um, why is that? And do you generally see more developers entering security today than in the past? Um, so as, as to why it is, I think, I think it's that you understand the rules of the system, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, I guess if I was going to come up with an analogy, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a big video gamer, but, but I would guess, you know, that analogy might be that the, the more time you spend in a game or, uh, or, or in any type of a system, uh, then the more you understand the intricacies of, of how that system works and how you might be able to cheat that system and get things to, to do things that they're not intended to do. Mm -hmm. I think that the, all of our computers, the operating system itself, the applications we run, they were all written by developers and, you know, they have the same workflow and processes that other developers have. So, you know, a developer understands the time crunch about getting an application finished and turned over to quality assurance and what quality assurance is going to look for and the things that they're going to have to, um, to do in testing their apps and the shortcuts that they themselves take. And when you understand the shortcuts that you yourself take, then you can anticipate what other people might have taken, the shortcuts that they might have taken, the mistakes that they have made. I look back at some of the programs that, that I wrote early in my career and think, oh my goodness, <laughs> what, what did I do to that poor company, right? From an information security standpoint, right? I'm, I, I wish I could go back and, and undo the, some of those applications that I wrote early in my career just because they were, in retrospect, you know, horrible uh, um, applications from an information security standpoint. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know not to make those mistakes anymore. And I also know to look for those types of mistakes in other programs that people have, um, have developed. And uh, so when I, when I see an application in a corporate environment, well, then I'm going to try and look for those mistakes because I, I, I know that I've made them and I know exactly how that mistake impacts security. So developers really have a better um, understanding of what's going on inside the operating system and inside the application and make some of the best inform, um, information security professionals. Right. If I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I see more developers entering into information security because I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that the demand for developers, it, it continues to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so many opportunities out there that if you want to just develop applications, uh, then you don't necessarily have to, you know, look to information security for those fields. And I, I see most of the people coming into information security are coming into it from a uh, more of a systems engineering or systems administration background than from a development background, um, which is a shame because, as I said, I think developers often have some of the best insights as to what's going on. 
Um, right. No, that's yeah. a good point. And, uh, you know, believe me, it's no easier as a journalist to go back and read stories that you've written uh, years and years before. It's the same sort of uh, cringe-inducing experience, although maybe maybe with uh, a lot less risk involved. So uh, I understand what you're saying as far as that goes. Um, but you did start out as a software developer, and, and that's interesting. Uh, you wrote code for years in programming languages like uh, C, Delphi, PHP, and, and now you're uh, instructing people on automating security tasks with uh, Python. Um, why is Python a helpful language to work with in a security context? Well, I don't know that information security uh, has an advantage over other um, disciplines with regard to how easy Python is. I, I just think you know, Python is a very easy to understand, um, very readable code. It's it's very easy for someone to um, who, who's never programmed before. If I'm going to teach them a language, well, I'm going to I'm going to teach them Python. It's you, know, you can you can approach it from a procedural standpoint. You can um, approach it from a functional standpoint. Um, you can approach it from an object oriented uh, standpoint. It's it's a very flexible language. Its syntax is easy to understand, and it's got such a wide uh, range of support from other people that have already developed modules that do many of the things that you already want to do. You know, the, um, one of the classic jokes from the Python programming um, world is uh, in the Python interpreter, if you import anti-gravity, right, there's a module named anti-gravity. When you import anti-gravity, it actually launches a browser and brings up a cartoon that is a joke. It's kind of so it's built into the interpreter is this joke um, <laughs> about importing anti-gravity. And, and the joke there is, is alluding to the fact that Python just has such a rich module base that if you need to do something, somebody's probably already written a module to do that for you, and you can just import it and begin using it. And the same is certainly true for information security. In information security, we've got modules that other people have already written that can authenticate to remote systems and interact with them, that can exploit vulnerabilities, that can map networks, that can read packets and pull them apart, that can create forged packets and transmit them across a network. So there's, there's a very, very rich development environment with a long history of support um, that's available to people who want to develop um, applications uh, for in information security in Python. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, speaking of Python, support for Python 2 just ended, uh, and Python 3 is not backwards compatible from what I understand. Um, most or all of the major Python packages out there uh, seem to be supporting the new version in one way or another, which should make migration easier for most people. But generally speaking, when a programming language goes end of life like this, um, how should teams adapt? Should they drop what they're doing and migrate right away? Or can they stay put if their apps are fairly secure and reliable? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, and the answer is, uh, um, <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. <laughs> so one of, one of the things that one of the things that's happened here with uh, the end of Python two. So Python two is no longer supported, which means they're not going to be introducing new features. If there's a vulnerability in Python, 
then they will most likely not release a patch to fix the old Python interpreter, which means if you're running that Python into interpreter and they uh, the vulnerability is discovered, it'll probably stay vulnerable to attack. So that would mm -hmm. obviously be a bad thing that would um, be a catalyst for you to upgrade from Python 2 to Python 3 mm -hmm. um, quite hastily. But you know, the fact that they're no longer releasing updates doesn't mean that your code stops working, your code base stops working. You can continue to run your Python 2 um, programs in your Python 2 interpreter forever. You know, it's, it's just like Windows XP. Windows XP, support for that ended many years ago. But what percentage of our critical infrastructure is being run on Windows XP? How many hospital life support systems are still running on <laughs> Windows XP? You know, it's the answer is a scary amount, right? Mm -hmm. So um, those, those applications aren't necessarily going to die. But here's, here's the other thing is... Uh, there, there's this one uh, standard called PEPS 394. PEPS mm -hmm. 394 is a Python standard that's that says on Linux systems, when you type the word Python, which version of Python is it supposed to run? Is it supposed to run Python 1 or, is it, or excuse, me, excuse me, Python 2 or Python 3? Well, PEPS 394 today, even a couple of days into January, still says it should run Python 2. But that may change at some point in the future. And even if it doesn't change, we've already seen some Linux operating systems make the change where Python 2, the Python command now automatically launches Python 3. And since they're not compatible, if you've got Linux systems out there that are running Python 2 source code, and today when, it, um, when programs launch Python in your source code, they work fine, there is the possibility that you're going to install patches on your Linux system sometime in the near future, and the, uh, the operating system will have applied a patch that changes where that Python interpreter points, and so now you're going to run Python 3, and your code will break. So uh, and that'll, that'll be a matter of administration going back in and changing things or removing patches and things like that. Um, it may not be as easy as I do nothing and everything continues to work. You may have to take some steps to make sure that you continue to run Python 2 um, in a Python 2 interpreter moving forward. But other than that, um, is there a catalyst to move? Yeah, I'd say um, you know, at some point we will discover a vulnerability in the Python interpreter that will, um, that will necessitate you moving off of that system if you want to not have a vulnerability. But that said, I can tell you that I, I've, I, within the last year, gone to a uh, physician's office. Actually, it was a dentist. I was to a dentist's office who was running their entire organization on a Python 2.2 application, mm -hmm. um, which that, that interpreter is known to have um, several vulnerabilities, including buffer overflows and other critical vulnerabilities that can attack. But um, if there isn't a business driver for them to make that change, then oftentimes it's hard for organizations that don't have technology folks in there advocating for making these changes uh, to, to, to force that to happen. So they'll, they'll continue mm -hmm. to run Python 2.2 apps forever until mm -hmm. they get owned, and that's <laughs> when they'll make the difference. Right, the, the risk or the, the immediate risk has to reach a, a critical mass of sorts, right? Yeah. Right, right. Um, 
with a language like Python, you know, you can you can build a variety of of, of tools to improve security posture. You mentioned pa uh, packet analyzers and backdoors for penetration testers are a couple examples. Um, is it more preferable for a security person to be the one uh, to code in these kind of features? Is is it an area where an organization needs to make a judgment call on whether that should be developers or security, or does that typically fall on the latter group? Um, well, I think, you know, I, many of the organizations I've seen have uh, developers already entrenched in their, in their application development teams and things like that who are coding in some application of there. Many of those are Python shops, or they at least have a part of their team that's, that's Python and other parts that are .NET and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if, as a security professional, if you already know how to code in those language and you can have those discussions with those, uh, with those developers so that when they have good questions like, hey, if Python is a type safe language, do I really have to worry about buffer overflows? If, as a security professional, you understand what those, what those terms mean and know how to respond to that, and, and then you can develop those relationships with developers and help them to understand um, how to write better code. Um, I find that information security professionals, it's, it's a different focus, right? An application developer is focused on building a tool. They want to talk about user experience and uh, you know, efficiencies of algorithms and mm -hmm. things like that in order to sort through their data. Uh, oftentimes in information security, many of the tools that we're developing um, are, are there to well, automate the boring stuff, right? Automate the things that would take us a long period of time, like uh, running scans, consolidating reports, um, uh, sorting through packet captures, uh, filling the gaps of where the application developers um, haven't necessarily implemented a feature. For example, a very uh, common use of forensics would, or, or of, of Python would be, uh, you know, I've got a forensics tool that analyzes 90% of the artifacts that I've got as part of an investigation, but I've got these other 10% that there isn't a tool out there that knows what to do with these um, forensics artifacts. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that I know how to code and I can write my own tools, and I don't, I don't have to sit back and wait for a development team to build those tools for me. Mm -hmm. If I am in the middle of an investigation, I've got some tool, um, some artifacts that um, I need to rip apart at the binary level and get in and find out what's what's inside of that artifact. I can write my own tool to do that, and I'm not I'm not uh, hampered by the development process of of a large organization. So I think that having programming skills in your information security team makes you more nimble, makes you able to respond to threats as quickly as they change, because you know, the, the actors, the threat actors out there, they're always coming up with new techniques and we don't want to be forced to sit back and wait for some vendor to create a product that will allow us to respond to the threats. We need to be able to, to make changes in our environment as quickly as the attackers are changing. Right. And that's such a good point. I mean, there's already a little bit of this inherent friction between uh, the development side and the security side, right? I mean, even as we hear about organizations trying to break down these silos. Um, so if you have to wait for another feature to be built, I mean, you know, God knows when that's going to happen. Um, do you have any advice, generally speaking, about how to get those two sides to communicate or collaborate a little bit more, developers and security? Um, 
Anything that you found that, that is uh, generally helpful or works well? Well, what is the, the nature of the tension? Um, I think oftentimes it is that you know, security people don't understand developers and what it is that they're trying to get done, right? That, that I've got a product timeline. I've got to develop these features. I've got to get these things implemented. I've got to get it through quality testing and peer reviews. And security professionals are like, well, you've got this vulnerability. You need to fix it. And don't even necessarily give justification to the developer as to why they need to spend their time on this vulnerability because, you know, it, it hasn't been fully explained and fully justified. Um, and I think that the same can be true from the other perspective. I think that oftentimes the two groups have competing goals mm -hmm. uh, or different goals, not necessarily competing, but different goals. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily understand what um, fully what the other is trying to do. This is one of the reasons that I think um, that having a development background, um, if you have a development background, and you understand what the other department is doing, then you're more, you're, you're able to communicate in a more effective way such that you understand their goals and you can integrate those things. You know, ideally, right, information security should not be a step that, that um, developers have to go through in order to get a product released. Right? Today you have a, a product team, um, they go through quality testing and then they go through security testing before they go through a release, right? And if all of our developers were security folks, right, we'd still, you'd still want to have, what's the difference between running uh, an, uh, on your tests, right? You're going to build a test suite um, before you release your test suite. Um, why would we have to have a separate test that's going to test uh, algorithm efficiency and um, function inputs and function outputs and um, you know just looking for assertions of different uh, types of data structures and then a second set of tests for security. So it seemed like right, if if we're we're all speaking the same language that those first quality tests uh, can test for both. Um, you know there. That said, right there is, there are some um, different types of threats that you have when you're when you're looking at you know, trust boundaries. Um, when you have you know, all of your internal functions are calling other functions that you trust, you're not necessarily going to want to look at those the same way that you would look at the functions um, or parts of your program that are taking input from untrusted sources, like the user who's running the application or data that you're reading from the internet. Um, but I think that um, when you have developers, uh, when you come from a development background and you understand information security, you can eliminate a lot of that tension or vice versa. If you come from a security background and then you learn the development side, then you can eliminate a lot of that tension between the two groups because well, then everybody's on the same team. Right. Uh, one last question, Mark, before I let you go. Um, you, we've been talking a lot about you know, automating security tests, uh, tests or tasks. Um, should uh, security folks automate as much as possible, as early as possible, or are there any practical, you know, boundaries there that they should, uh, you know, avoid or scale back what they automate? Um, 
when we talk about automation from our perspective, you know, the dev and the test perspective, it's usually automate, automate as much as you can, right? I mean, so that you can focus on the more important things. Is that the same kind of idea uh, from the uh, security perspective? Um, yeah, it is. It's You, you want to automate as, as much as you can, as often as you can um, in information security. So one of the stories that, that I tell um, is uh, when when I first started to learn about information security, um, or see, um, when I first started to learn about um, programming in Python in particular, I was I was already head of development in some other languages, but I decided I was going to teach myself Python. And um, the the very first project I wrote for myself was to automate the creation of this Excel spreadsheet that I would um, have to write at the end of every month. And it was a typical management spreadsheet that had um, key performance indicators like the number of antivirus alerts and the number of firewall uh, alerts and the number of patches we deployed. Um, but I'd do this report every month, and it would take me about uh, two days to log into these 20 different systems, pull all these statistics back, and put them into an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> so I thought I, was, I would just write this thing and automate it. Mm-hmm. So I taught myself Python, and I wrote the program, and it took me – 45 days to write this program and get it to the point where um, I was pulling from all these different systems and reproducing the same spreadsheet that um, it took me two days to create. And then I did the math on that. I'm like, wait a minute, two days versus 45 days. That means I could have done this once. I do it once a month. It's going to take me like three years before I even make up the hours that it took me to automate this process. Hmm. So initially, it seemed to me like this automation was a complete waste of time. But then this magical thing happened, right? That um, now at the end of every month, I just run this little spreadsheet, this run Python program, and it builds my spreadsheet for me that used to took, take two days. And now I look at the report and I'd be, I think to myself, you know, this report would be much more effective if I would incorporate, you know, uh, statistics from the vertical market that we're in and include them and compare that to um, others in the report. So let me just add that to the report. And so this would take me another hour. And so the next month, I still spent two days on this report, even though I had an automated process to do it. Mm -hmm. But this two days took this report that really didn't make any impact on management and really make and, and affect any change in the organization. And it turned it into a report that really drove significant change in the organization and justified budgets and just completely uh, changed the way people looked at information security in the organization. And if it wasn't for the automation that got me past that two days of logging into these systems to pull those reports, I never, never would have gotten to the point where I was able to add that value to the report. So even when the time spent in doing automation seems like it's a, it's a it's a losing game. I'm never going to make up this time, and that it's going to take me to write this program. Oftentimes, you find that once once you're behind the chore of having to do this daily grind process, that the time that you now spend adding value to what that process did does have the value that you needed. So I I almost think that almost always there's value in automating um, these tasks that we've got in front of us and developing a program to make that thing happen for us automatically. Makes sense. 
Well, Mark, this has been really helpful, and thank you for joining us. All right, thank you. Once again, be sure to check out Mark's presentation at Security East called Automating Information Security with Python. Subscribe to the Test and Release podcast for more interviews with experts on application development and testing topics. You can also read expert advice, tutorials, and news stories at searchsoftwarequality.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SoftwareTestTT.